0: Today on Radical Personal Finance is live Q&A. Radical Personal Finance a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Josh Rashid. Today is Friday, January 19, 2024. And on this Friday, as we do each Friday in which I can arrange the appropriate recording and broadcasting technology, we record a live Q&A. You call in, talk about anything you want. been listening to these shows looking for a chance to talk to me bring up your topic of, of conversation bring up any questions that you have i'd love for you to do that you can do that by becoming a patron of the show go to patreon.com radical personal finance patreon.com radical personal finance sign up to support the show there on patreon that'll gain you access to one of these friday q and a shows q friday q and a calls that gives me the ability to uh Meter the calls a little bit Just make sure I don't have too many calls um, By the way If those of you who want to talk to me This is probably your cheapest way to do that I've had people uh, Of course I want you to stay around For years and years as a patron But I've had people sign up Sign up for one month call, Talk to me for on Q&A calls uh, Each week for a month Or something like that And then they're done And they're out of here Also remember though uh, So if you'd like to talk to me That's a fair way to do it However also remember that right now Consulting calls are open During the month of January If you'd like to book a private consultation with me Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com Consulting consult radical personal com slash consult probably one of the most competent most discreet financial advisors that uh, you can talk to and I don't have any conflicts of interest don't sell any products I just simply here to talk to you about anything that you want so you can judge by the way that I handle these Q&A calls and see if you think it might be useful but if you think I might be able to serve you go to radical personal com slash consult we begin with Andrew in Minnesota Andrew welcome to the show how can I serve you today
1: yeah. Good afternoon, Joshua. I just want to first off say thanks and appreciate the opportunity to do this on a regular basis. Um, my pleasure. So my question is is to just get general advice. I'm interested to start my own podcast around building wealth and investing, specifically in in a niche to build mid six figure to mid seven figure wealth. For and I want to. Be mindful to Christians with respect to tithing, generosity in general, biblical financial advice. And I'm just curious if you have any recommendations on how to build a brand around that concept that would eventually generate income over months to years that I could potentially live off of.
0: You said podcast. Do you mean audio podcast or do you mean video podcast?
1: Either slash both, I would assume. Just to get, I'm not a content creator by any uh, any 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 way currently, so I think I'd get started generally doing audio. But I'm I'm definitely open to video and even just a common webcam videotaping the conversation. Right. So,
0: so let me begin with yeah, that. Not, is that I would say that the era of audio only podcasting is. Basically behind us. And so if I were starting over today, even as I think about with my own stuff, I would never again start an audio-only podcast. And let me explain why that is so you can see if I'm right or wrong. And Because there, there are many audio podcasts, many people listen to audio podcasts, but audio podcasts face some significant challenges that other forms of media do not. The first problem that you face with audio podcasts is is the problem of findability? Now, if somebody wants to go and look for an audio podcast, there is no problem of findability. You can go to Apple Podcasts, you can go to Stitcher, you can go to uh, uh, what's the the song one that that everyone listens on Spotify. Spotify. You can go wherever you want. You can find podcasts. But when you're going, that's only serving the people who are going and looking for those audio podcasts. And so those people can go and find an audio podcast. And that's great. But once they find it, they can't really share it. And this is the first big problem with audio-only podcasting. Audio-only podcasts are not shareable. And thus, they basically never go viral. Um, A show can sort of kind of go viral although I haven't heard of a, a pod, an audio podcast going viral in years, there are certainly many large audio podcasts. But a podcast itself, like a, sp- a specific episode of a podcast cannot go viral because there's no easy way to share it. There's no easy way to share a clip from it. There's no functional way to that, 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 that it can go. So you might have a show of mine that you really enjoy. And so you'll send an episode to a friend and that friend may click on a link and listen to the episode. I do that occasionally. occasionally. Occasionally when someone sends me a link, but they can often listen without subscribing and the listening is often buried in a long format of show. Uh, You know, I, I, of course, produce a long format podcast and my listeners that are here for the long format, they like that. I like the medium, I really it fits what I like to do, but in general, it means that it's very hard for people to find the content. And, and a specific podcast episode or a specific audio podcast only mo- moment never goes viral. Let's pretend that the problem of shareability was instantly solved. Let's pretend that you recorded a podcast and you had somehow some custom software that could take a perfect three minute clip from an audio podcast. And so anytime somebody wanted to share that clip of some profound thought that you've had with your audio podcast and they wanted to share that with all their friends on social media and they click that, you're still left with just audio. And yeah. unless there's some kind of automated transcription service that's, that's transcribing it and putting words on it, it's just such a boring video and we've all lost all of our attention span that nobody's going to sit there and pay attention to a three-minute audio-only clip. So you, you don't even have something that can go viral uh, the way that a... a um, the way that a three-minute video clip from a show or something like that could go viral because there's nothing interesting to see. And so when your listeners are sitting there scrolling and swiping while they're sitting on the bus or whatever, uh, then they're not, likely to, they're not likely to sit there for long enough to listen to your audio, especially in a TikTok generation where now our attention spans are even shorter. Now, the second big problem with podcasts is that there's no algorithm to feed your content to someone else. So if you have an audio-only podcast that is positioned on a, a, a traditional audio-only platform, and somebody listens to your episode, there's no algorithm that's going to pitch them the next episode. There's no algorithm that's going to say, hey, have you checked this out? Now, compare and contrast that with YouTube. If I go and I watch a a, if I go to YouTube and I search for something, I'll get a lot of interesting search results. And I'll find a video and I'll watch two or three videos. Then the next day when I'm flipping through my YouTube feed, all of a sudden YouTube pitches me a video on the thing that I watched yesterday. And I say, oh, that's cool. And if I watch one person's video, then all of a sudden now it'll pitch me another person's that video. And many of the channels or things that I consume on an ongoing basis are things that I consume with uh, based upon the fact that uh, they were recommended to me by the algorithm. And so that recommendation engine of the algorithm is is really, really a valuable thing about the video platforms and it doesn't exist on any of the audio platforms. So um, the third thing that has happened is with the absolute collapse of the price of bandwidth that most of us basically have enough data that we don't much care whether we're listening to audio or we're watching video. So when I started Radical Personal Finance in 2013, it was a very pivotal moment in the technology of audio podcasting because we had gone past the stage at which you had to take your iPod, plug it into your computer, and upload all your podcasts that you downloaded from iTunes. That was where I started listening to audio podcasting. Some people were before that, but that's where I ended in. Um, It was past that stage, but we weren't yet to the stage where bandwidth was cheap. We were at the smartphone revolution where people didn't have to deal with iTunes and plugging their iPod and MP3 players into the computer, but we hadn't yet reached absolute zero-cost bandwidth. And so audio podcasts were very attractive because you could download all kinds of podcasts, have them all ready for you, and you could, while you're driving around, easily listen to those things. And that was where the mega podcast listeners kind of started and and came from. That's dead and gone. Um, I don't do that anymore. And I'm a podcast creator. I do not today listen to any audio-only podcasts. And the audio podcasts that I do listen to, I usually stream them on something like YouTube because it's more convenient for me to have it there than it is for me to use uh, podcast players. And actually, that's not true. Excuse me. There is one podcast that I do listen to that is an audio podcast that's not on YouTube. Um, So, but... Beyond that, like the whole world of kind of audio podcast listening has dramatically decreased. Now, what has increased is video. So, video is absolutely enormous, and video in all of its uh, formats long form video, two hour video, two second video, all of video, we are living in the day and age of video. Um, Now, let me pivot for just a moment to writing. Writing is not dead and gone. Writing is still extremely powerful and extremely useful. But the the methods of writing have changed. And writing has the great benefit of being scannable and having the ability to go viral in an appropriate forum. And so, as I see it, the future is for strong writers and for strong video creators to, to really flourish in the future. Now, That doesn't mean that you can't have an audio-only podcast because there is still a great contingent of people that may want to listen to your content because it is convenient for them. They might not live in a place where they have great connectivity, et cetera. And so those people, creating an audio podcast feed is certainly something that should be done, uh, but I, I I would not recommend it as a primary platform for almost anybody in today's age. Now, here is one comment, however, where I would say it's worth considering. If creating the audio podcast is something that is useful for you personally as a way to articulate your thoughts and to force you, and and, and if it's the simple first step to going from being a consumer to being a producer— then you should do that. But you should as quickly as possible add in other forms of content that have the opportunity to go viral, to be shared more easily in a, in a compact, concise way, and also that have the opportunity to get algorithms working on your side, sharing your content in some way, shape, or form. And audio podcasts, as I see it, suffer enormously from those two major problems in
1: today's world. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, good advice. When, when would you find it appropriate to spend money on advertising on, on, a, on any social media advertising platform, spending a few hundred dollars a month there to, to try to kickstart that going viral or, or searchability?
0: When you have when some my- saleable product where you can profit from it. So for the business okay. model to work, you have to have some kind of product that you can sell. And if you have that, then go ahead and start spending money on ads. Okay. Sounds
1: good. Okay. Okay. Thank you very
0: much. Yep. My pleasure. Uh, and feel free to call back and, and we can we can go over more mm-hmm. steps. But... I feel strongly about that the 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 era of audio only podcasting, the great rise in it it 's still there, just like radio is still there, but it 's not where the excitement is it 's not where the masses are and i don't and I believe that it suffers from those two enormous flaws. Peter in New York, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today?
2: Hey, Joshua, can I ask you some questions about um, cash management, both strategic and tactical? Yes all right. Um, my, my portfolio's gotten a little out of whack and I'm happy to go into that. Um, but I wanted to first sort of strategically try to figure out if my stock to cash balance should also include my real estate holdings or not. And then I had some specific tactical questions about getting the stock portion of, or the cash portion of my portfolio built back up.
0: What is your target percentage and allocation towards cash?
2: So uh, with investable money, I'm interested in 90% mutual funds and 10% cash.
0: And how much total cash does that represent in terms of your portfolio?
2: So it depends on whether the real estate's in there or not. That's what I'm trying to figure out first. Because um, my, my net worth, when you throw in the real estate, is like double um, what it is if you just looked at the investable uh, assets. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what my cash number should be, if it should include the total number with the real estate or not. What's the um, net worth with, with the, real
0: estate and what's the net worth without real estate?
2: With real estate, it's about $5 million And without the real estate, it's about $2 million.
0: Okay. And how did you come up with a 10% target? What's the logic behind that target?
2: I just picked uh, Warren Buffett. Always said ninety percent S and P index and ten percent uh, short term Treasuries. So I said that sounds like a good mix to me.
0: Okay, and currently is the money in Treasuries?
2: Uh, so currently my cash position's gotten a little bit uh, whacked. It's um, the biggest chunk of it is in uh, a high yield savings account, uh, and then the next biggest tranche is the cash balance of a whole life insurance policy. And then after that is in a checking account.
1: Okay.
0: S- why did Warren Buffett say 10% treasuries, 90% uh, mutual funds?
2: I-, I think the idea always was just to have some cash on the sideline for interesting opportunities that come around. I always got the sense it was for dry powder purposes.
0: Okay. So I'm fine with it. Just, we just always have to ask that question. Like why, why are we doing this? Uh, And so I have some thoughts and I have a framework, but before I give that to you, what specifically is your first question then?
2: So my real question is I've I've gotten out of whack because I simultaneously had a large inheritance tax bill, which is how the real estate portion of the portfolio got really big all of a sudden. And I had a car that I came off of a lease that I bought. So I simultaneously had a huge tax bill and a huge car loan bill and all of my usual sort of emergency fund cash that I had went to that. I've been doing a little 0% credit card games and have a whole life insurance loan that I'm paying back. And I'm trying to, you know, the the credit card game is sort of easy to do the three card Monty. The The real question I had is with the whole life insurance loan, how beneficial it is to drag that out versus paying it down? You know, given that it's uh, even though I'm paying myself back as my highest interest debt right now, that's really the tactical question I have. Um, but also, I was trying to figure out: do I do, does the number that I'm shooting for need to reflect the fact that I've got these big real estate holdings, or can it just you know balance out what's in the four hundred one k and everything else that's invested?
0: I don't know of a way that we could answer that cat that last question categorically until we project a few scenarios. And so there's when you think about your cash holdings then you want to say well what are what are my targets what are my scenarios that's why I pressed on the 10% number. You could imagine yep. for example yep. let me let me just set out a couple scenarios to try to prove the point. Let's say that somebody has a uh, a $10,000 net worth. And, uh, and so he's trying to take Warren Buffett's advice, and he's trying to keep $9,000 invested in mutual funds and $1,000 in cash. Um, well, that's obviously dumb, right? Somebody with a $10,000 net worth should have all $10,000 in cash. Because you're going to need that money to move apartments and put down first, last, and security. You're going to need that money to fix the car when it breaks. When you have $10,000 net worth, the 1090 rule doesn't make any sense because it needs to be 100% cash and 0% mutual funds at that level of net worth. Now, if somebody's got $100 bazillion and they're trying to keep 90% in, uh, in mutual funds, excuse me, I need to sneeze. <laughs> so somebody 's got one hundred billion dollars and they 're trying to keep ninety percent in mutual funds uh, and their ten percent means that they 've got you know fifty eight million dollars sitting in cash and they have no intention of buying a business or anything like that then what 's the point of having fifty eight million dollars sitting in cash now You could understand Warren Buffett giving that advice about kind of a dry powder target but I don't think it's very helpful for us to begin there. I think we need to begin first by saying, what are some reasons we might want to have cash and then target those reasons. So the example, this is where we get into kind of day-to-day normal stuff, three to six months worth of expenses and cash. Why? Well, we might lose our job. If we lose our job, we don't want to be in, in a difficult situation. We want to be able to get a good next job. We want to have make sure we have money. So if we have six months of expenses, that six months of wiggle room, I think I could probably get a job fairly quickly within that, especially if I'm fairly employable. Now, let's say that instead of being fairly employable, you have a job where you have a very unique skill set, and maybe you can make a lot of money when you're working, but it's not uncommon at all for you to have, say, eight months without a contract or 10 months without a contract. Well, now, in that situation, we would immediately go and say, I need to have a year's worth of emergency fund, a year's worth of expenses, because I... Uh, because I." Uh, I, I need to, I might go a year without having income. So now we, we, the goal is a year. Now, if someone has real estate, then let's say we want to look at it and we say, what could likely happen? Well, the worst scenario that might happen is I would have a hurricane with a bad tornado spawned from it that rolls across all four of my rental houses at the same exact time, destroying all four of them. Well, I have insurance policies, my deductibles on each property are $25,000. And so if I have $100,000 in cash, then that covers my deductibles on four properties. That's probably more extreme that I need to think about, but that's kind of a starting point because now we're putting a name on the cash and we're we're giving it a job to do. And now we understand how much we might want to have. Similarly, in the real estate space, if we're looking at it and we recognize, you know what, um, from time to time, I have a two-month vacancy. I need to make sure that I'm always prepared to have money for a two-month vacancy and I need to make sure that my average turnaround on a house when someone moves out and kind of fixing it up is, say, $4,000. So I need enough money to cover my expenses for mortgage expenses and other stuff for a two-month vacancy on average plus $4,000 turnarounds plus 50% of a roof or something like that. And so the only way we can arrive at the appropriate amount of cash to have on hand is based upon the kinds of scenarios that we would envision needing that money for. And then that's actually what funds a lot of kind of what I say about where and how cash should be stored. So I tell people they should start their cash savings by having a certain amount of money that they have at home. And so why do I say that? Physical currency. Well, how do you figure out what, what amount of physical currency it, it, you should have? Well, you make a, up a scenario. So my scenario is uh, you know, all of a sudden they pass some law against homeschooling or something like that. And it's going to be retroactive and I've got to flee the country so they don't Put my children in prison. And so I need to make sure that I have $10,000 of cash to go down to the airport and buy plane tickets out of the country so they don't arrest me and my children. And I need to make sure that I have enough money to flee and have three months of expenses in a foreign area, foreign land. So maybe if I have $20,000 in currency, that allows me to go and get on an airplane and start over somewhere else. Uh, You know, I'm using kind of a goofy but real scenario. Or you might look and say, if, if, everything went bad and I lost everything I had. At least I have three months of expenses. And so I want to have that in physical currency, but, or you look at, you know how much money do you keep in a bank account in another country? Well, my answer is something like two years worth of living expenses. That's a target. Why? Well, maybe my home currency is collapsing and I have to move abroad because there's hyperinflation where I'm from, and I need two years to kind of figure things out. So I keep two years worth of living expenses abroad, and I invest everything else, etc. So I, I'm, I've given enough examples now, but that's the way that you figure out how much cash you need. And a guy with a hundred million dollars doesn't need ten dollars of cash, just because of a ninety ten rule, and a guy with ten thousand dollars doesn't need a thousand dollars of cash just because of a ninety ten rule. There needs to be a name that's put on it based upon p- probable potential life circumstances that may happen and how how you might use cash to negotiate those circumstances.
2: Got it. Got it. I've always sort of done the the standard three to six months. You know, reserve has always been my usual. Just to cover cover living expenses on the odd chance that nobody's working for a little while
0: right and i but think that's beyond, reasonable
2: beyond that yeah beyond that i've never really targeted for anything other than that i mean occasionally, it's nice to have some if there's some dip in the market or something like that. But really, that's all I've ever earmarked it for. Right. And so I, I didn't give trading examples,
0: but a trader will go through a similar thought process. You know, I never commit more than let's say you had some rules. Let's say you said, I'm never going to commit more than 10% of my net worth to a position. And I always want to have enough money to be able to take advantage of a really great uh, opportun- buying opportunity when it's there. I want to have that dry powder. So then that person might say, I'm going to always keep ten percent of my net worth in cash so that I have the ability to jump on something when I see it or whatever other logic works based upon your particular strategy my point is is it's fine to accept a a, a rule of thumb uh, you you routinely hear me use rules of thumb uh, because rules of thumb work if somebody has six months of expenses and 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 that fits if somebody always has an emergency fund that covers three to six months of expenses, by definition, that amount of money will scale to somebody's lifestyle. And so people who live a lifestyle of, say, $3,000 a month, they don't have $30,000 emergencies. They just don't because everything in their life is scaled to their expenses. On the other hand, a guy who lives a lifestyle of $15,000 a month, it wouldn't be uncommon for him to have a $30,000 emergency. It's just a different expression of emergency because our financial transactions are always scaled to our normal life. And so the rule of thumb is perfectly fine uh, to, to use because it kind of automatically fits most of those circumstances. You wanted to buy out a lease on the car. You're the kind of guy who has six months of expenses. For you buying a lease on a car, I don't know what you paid, but let's just say $40,000 to buy out your lease. Okay, done. Great. This was no problem because that's the scale of your financial life.
2: So I don't want to keep you too much longer. On the on the whole life loan, just from a uh, a practical standpoint, is it beneficial to drag out paying that out no. for however the policy and no okay so no. it doesn't it doesn't matter how i do that it's it gets paid off when it's paid off and either neither here nor there on the rate of doing it right so my
0: answer to you was um the first thing we look at is do we need the cash right now or are we simply kind of rebuilding the supplies if we're rebuilding our reserves then my first answer, and I'll just give it to you, we don't need to go through it in a question and answer way, is you start by funneling extra amounts from your income towards just simply building cash again. So for a guy like you who's wealthy, who could sell property, for a guy like you who has the ability to open up your stock account, sell $100,000, and have it covered immediately, I don't think you need to freak out and start selling property unnecessarily. You don't need to start incurring taxable gains unnecessarily. You just want to go ahead and say, hey, I spent down a lot of cash. Let's rebuild up the reserves. And the ideal way to build up reserves is to simply build them up from income. And so you want to, you want to of course, make sure that you maximize qualified account contributions, because as the calendar year passes, you'll lose the ability to make those contributions. But after you've maximized 401ks, HSAs, et cetera, whatever your qualified accounts or otherwise you're using, then just stop additional investing unless there's a really great deal uh, and you're just buying bargain shares of something. Stop additional investing and start rebuilding cash just from income flows. And then that in and of itself should, should handle it. Uh, the first thing I would pay off would be the life insurance loan. And the reason is that if you're successfully surfing your 0% balances and, um, I'm assuming maybe you took my credit card course, or at least you're familiar with the concepts I taught in that, is that oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're successfully surfing those balances, and they're small balances, let's say it's 20% of your, of your total credit line, then those are pretty cheap balances. And anytime you need to, you can always just take out another life insurance loan and pay them down uh, if you need to. But So I would rather go ahead and pay down the life insurance loan first Pay off that interest, surf the balances using the 3% or 5% offers uh, if necessary, while just simply paying them down out of cash flows. And then, if if something happens, and let's say that uh, they reduce your credit limits or credit score goes down or something like that, then what you do is just go ahead and take out another policy loan against the cash values, use that to pay down the credit card balances until you get a more advantageous offer, and then switch back. So you kind of go back and forth. But there's no reason to want to maintain a life insurance policy loan on your policy. It, there's no there's no benefit to maintaining it. It's The only reason to have it is if it was useful for you to do something else. But once you've used it, you want to take it out, put it back, pay it down, uh, and get the policy back restored back to full operating condition by not having a loan on it. Got it. All right. Thank you. Great. My pleasure. All right, we move on to the state of Washington. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today?
3: Is that me? Can you hear me? That's you, whoever you is. Yep. Oh, cool. Uh, my my name's Kevin. Um I had a I guess a technical question like um short story as building a house this year and I'm trying to think of ways that I could generate um additional cash flow from possibly my, uh, taxable investment account or turning off, uh, 401k contributions or even HELOC on the current property, which is going to be sold at the end, you know, stuff like that. Cause I'm going to have to be paying interest only payments on the loan as the stuff progresses throughout the year as it gets built. How much money do you need? I, uh, very unknown at the moment. Um, yeah, and very unknown. The first check I wrote was sixty five hundred bucks, and I am sure that's going to get bigger and quicker.
0: Are you borrowing money? Do you have a construction loan for the for the
3: construction? Yes, we will have a construction loan, but just yeah. try to cash flow it if I can as much as I can. All right, well, let
0: me give you two models to think about, two just frameworks to put in your thinking. I think that if these models are accurate, then you'll be able to answer all of the day to day questions. So let's begin with model number one. Model number one is if you want to have the lowest possible cost to the construction, then you should not borrow money for it. Anytime we do anything with borrowed money, we spend more money because psychologically, it's just easy to spend money. Um, Maybe it's just me, but at least that's always been my experience if you actually have to watch your dollars leave your bank account you take much better care of those dollars than if those dollars leaving your bank account are there because of your construction loan than if those dollars are there because of your um, you know your your credit card or whatever whatever the the SBA loan etc new business people who go and borrow money to start their business, waste money left, right, and center in a way that you don't when it's actually your money that you saved. And so if you came to me and you said, I am going to pay cash for everything, and because of that, I'm going to stop contributing to my 401k, I'm going to stop saving anything, et cetera, I'm just paying cash, I think that's a perfectly reasonable and even advisable plan because of those psychological effects you'll make generally speaking better decisions you'll spend less money your overall cost to create the house that you want will be lower now does that mean that you have to do it debt free it doesn't sound like that that's even a choice that you're making but I would say no uh, because there may be certain things that are just um, you know that are set so for example you have to borrow money to buy the land or you have to borrow money to get the shell built out and that's going to cost you x number of dollars and I'm definitely going to borrow money for that so that's okay and it's fine to do half and half but if you did something like say I'm going to borrow money or I paid I paid the, the, I paid cash for the land I have to borrow money to get the house shell built so that it's you know dried in and everything but everything after that I'm going to pay cash and do it myself little by little even if it takes you a couple of years to do that, et cetera, because of those behavioral changes, I think that's often a perfectly fine thing to do and a, a smart thing to do. Uh, and so it's fine to stop saving and investing. It's fine to do that stuff. Now, if you're, let's, so that's framework number one. And I think for most people, that's you're better off just to do that. Uh, I don't think almost anyone would regret not contributing to their 401k for a couple of years. If that allowed them to have a lower balance at the end, to know that they had squeezed every penny as much as possible so that they bought the right things, and also to make sure that they had enough money to comfortably buy the things that make the house really nice to have. Because the opposite argument for what I've described is that sometimes people pinch their pennies so hard when they're building a new house that they wind up not creating the house to the level that they really want. And so they buy all the cheap fixtures and eight years in, everything's rusted and you're pulling it all out. It would have been better if you'd just increased your budget 30% and bought the nice fixtures that that would have lasted for a longer period of time and and helped the house as well. And so if debt is one way you do that or just not saving is one way you do that, that's a reasonable, uh, a reasonable choice. Now, beyond that... Um, When we get to the topic of, should I stop putting money in my 401k or should I cash flow from my stocks? Those are two separate questions. Let me deal with those separately. If you don't contribute to your 401k, you lose your 401k contribution for the year once the calendar year is finished. And so if that's an important component of your long-term wealth building plan, as it is for most people, recognize that every calendar year that passes, that you don't max your accounts, is a calendar year that you won't be able to contribute. Doesn't mean you can't still invest later, doesn't mean you can't still get rich, but it's a calendar year that you won't be able to contribute. And so if you want that contribution, then you've got to do that, which would lead us to say if you have taxable investments, yeah, you should sell them, et cetera. Um, now, moving to the other thing that you alluded to, should I divert my cash flow from my taxable accounts? Sure, you should divert all cash flow. Uh, wherever it comes in, as any cash flow should be treated the same and it should go to your highest financial priority which is to build this house. Uh, If you have to sell investments and then then it's more a matter of tax planning the future of the investment and would I rather kind of pay for the things that I'm buying, or would I rather not pay for the things that I'm buying? But in general, I believe that for most people, the first principle that I described is going to be your most important one. You'll make better decisions, you'll be more careful, more thoughtful, and you'll feel better at the end when you're dealing with your money for stuff, rather than overspending by 82% because you did it all with debt.
3: Yeah, it's pretty much everything I thought through on my own as well. Um- but buying the land and everything else, I'm probably I'm more all my cash is gone effectively. So I'm trying to yeah, the so other thing you pointed out was was good. Okay,
0: so you got to get more cash, and obviously that's what you're saying. But that's going to come from either selling some of your investments to free up cash, or it's going to come from making more money, or it's just going to come from waiting until you can save more money, uh, and so. Uh, you 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 take a look at the situation and figure out what makes sense for you uh, but uh, those are the frameworks that I think will answer your questions good enough
3: yeah cool thank you yeah
0: my pleasure all right move to David in Texas David welcome to the show how can I serve you today
4: hey Joshua this is a this is a what would Joshua do type of question
0: WWJD um, baby and
4: so yeah <laughs> exactly so um, and, and we've spoken in the past and the consulting, um, so you might remember some of my uh, intricacies, but anyway, um, I have a full-time technical W2 job. And then I also have a, uh, side business, um, that probably around half of my full-time uh, W2 job. Um, the company that, um, just offered me this new job, um, and, and I, The the job I was about, the the job I was working was about to uh, get shut down for the project. So uh, this new job offered me to move actually closer to family. It's about an hour closer. We live out in the country where we would, I would call ourselves prepared. We're on five acres, um, small home um, with a a shop and some other stuff for being off grid. But anyway. this, the, the company, this other company offered to move us closer, which is actually closer to family. It's about an hour uh, closer to family. And so we'd be about 10, 10 to 15 minutes closer. I'm sorry, 10 to 15 minutes from family in this new area. Um, but uh, the, the dilemma is, right, do we stay? Do I stay um, and pursue my part-time side job and, and let it grow while spending more time with family? Or do I continue to, you know, do a, this technical job with the side job, being closer to family and help? I don't know what I don't know what answers you need from me.
0: Do you need more time with your
4: family? Um, it time is a commodity right now. I have a two-year-old and a three-month-old. And um, oh, sorry. Do you mean my meet my like my wife and kids, or do you mean my extended family? Yeah.
0: Do you need to spend more time with your
4: family right now? I would like to. But as, you know, as a husband and father, I'm also trying to not obviously neglect that aspect of, you know, having, you know, a good, strong income, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't ask the question as a joke. I ask it as a genuine question. Yeah. Let me just give some examples. I mean, a guy let like let's say that you come in and you got a fifteen year old kid and you come in and surprise your fifteen year old kid in his bedroom and he's sitting there cutting his cutting himself, right? Well Obviously, you need more with your family, and so you quit your job. You sell everything. You go and hike the Adirondack Trail, and you fix your 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 son, right? Whatever whatever can be done, mm-hmm. you you go crazy. Yeah. You act like a maniac, and you fix it. You 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 pour all of your energy and all of your focus onto this. And the thing that you obviously desperately need in that situation, because your 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 son is abandoned and and going. I mean, I don't mean to be too hyperbolic here, but he's down a very wrong path. He could be dead in two years. Then you desperately need time with your family. And so as a father, then you completely reorient everything else in your life and you and you fix that. Um, and that basic principle applies at different times. I mean, if, let's say you've got a... a, a I don't know, you've got two children right now, but let's say you've got four children, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old, and your wife is falling apart and the 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 burden is just enormous and you're worried about her health, et cetera, then obviously, yes, you need more time with a family. On the other hand, if you're doing your job well and you're a good husband and your wife is strengthened and she's, she's doing well and you've got healthy children, et cetera, then you don't need more time with your family. Uh, and, and that's where, you know... I, I think that there's something that is happening in our current age, and I'm probably guilty of perpetuating this, but there's some kind of idea that has been created that somehow, you know, an ideal man is a man who's with his family 168 hours a week. And while I clear I clearly care very much about family, your family, you being there with for yours, me being there with mine. I don't I, th- I don't think that's the ideal. I don't think that that's a proper framework. Uh, I don't think that there's I don't think that we look at the idea of time with family and say that 168 hours a week is the perfect standard. 158 hours a week with our family is uh, you know a grade B and so therefore 40 hours a week with our family is an F and we we've, we've got to move ourselves better by spending more time with our family. Um, I have made statements such as it's, quality of time at work that counts and quantity of time at home that counts. I think that that is true and that matters. Uh, I want to be with my family. I have made lifestyle decisions that have allowed me to be with my family 168 hours a week. But I reject the idea that that's the only correct path and that that is the only thing that you as a husband are responsible for doing. So as you said, the, the amount of income that your family has matters. It matters a lot. And the, your work matters. It matters a lot. It is important. Your work is important. Your contribution to the world through your work is important. Your sense of, of mission in your job is important. The things that you do are important. And so as a man, you have to look at your family and you have to say, do I need more time with my family? And, is, and what is the cost of that time versus how kind of other things are going well? And, you, and here's where you want to consider your family situation. Um, you want to, I mean, there's a huge difference between a guy who has a wife who's a full-time mother. He can get in his car. He can go off and work a long day, just totally confident that his children are well cared for, that they know that mommy and daddy love me. That's a very different scenario than husband and wife who both have demanding jobs and they rush off in the morning and they don't even see the kids because the babysitter or the au pair gets the children ready for work, et cetera. And so there's a, I I there's a there there's not an ideal perfect standard it's a standard that will adjust and will adapt throughout your life and in terms of time with family the thing that I don't even want to say it again cuz I've said it a bazillion times quite literally on the not quite literally that was that was not right I've said it many many times on the show and I feel like I'm just always over here beating this drum and I should quit beating that drum and find a new drum to beat on. But things like the age of your children matters. If you've got a two-year-old and a three-month-old, as a father, there's really very little, like obviously you want to play with your children and be there and build a relationship, et cetera, but you're being there with them more. And let's say you could free up five hours a day. It's not particularly productive, especially if your wife is there with them for those extra five hours a day. It's not that productive. And so, again, if your wife is falling apart, if she needs your help, if she needs your support in some way, then you roll up your sleeves and you strengthen your home. But if your home is strong and things are going well, then you keep focusing on building what you need to build, building the empire, building your dynasty, building your your, your vision, et cetera.
4: And, uh, yeah, it's the former. She's, she's struggling. Okay. and. So there's the answer. And so we want more kids.
0: <laughs> okay. So now, good. So perfect. Thank you for interrupting me because I was – but so if your wife is struggling, then you're need, you need to strengthen your wife, wife, and you have to then look at your wife, your individual wife, not a generic woman, but your woman. You need to look at your household, and you need wisdom, to, and you need to apply wisdom and say, how do I strengthen my wife, and how do I strengthen my household? one way of doing it might be for you to be involved and for you to be there. I have done this, right? I have many young children, I have done this. Uh, I have done this repeatedly on different occasions. In many ways, I'm much better at running my household than my wife is in terms of just keeping everything running very, very well. And so if she's struggling, yeah. then I step in and I try to, to work on things. We've had various discipline issues with, my, with, our, with various children. And if my children are disrespecting my wife and they're not obedient, then I have to step in and I have to correct that. But I don't look at it as a long-term career, I look at it as I have a responsibility to change this. And as soon as I get this child's behavior changed and fixed so that he or she is back in a proper place of respectful obedience and and respect for my wife, etc. Then i my goal is not to just to to be there. And and it's kind of a balance, right? Because if my wife is struggling the goal is not for me to just take over. The goal is for me to strengthen her, to help support her so that she's no longer struggling and then for her to to grow and be stronger in her area of domain and her area of responsibility. And so, and and, and that sometimes comes from you, right? A three-month-old is rough. We've had a rough year with our fifth baby. Um, it Last year was really difficult and a lot of it was difficult just because of having a baby in the house. And so you adapt. To that, but don't think it's a long-term thing. It doesn't have to be a long-term thing. It's just this is what it's like dealing with babies, and you may have a particularly difficult baby, you have a sick baby, et cetera, and all that stuff is draining. So you 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 figure out what what is there. Now, I would re- remind you though that you being home is a great solution. It's not the only solution. And so sometimes a better solution is find somebody who can lighten the load for her. Uh, Find a housekeeper who can come in, who can clean the house so she doesn't need to do that. Find a really great um, place to put your two-year-old for the morning so she has a break. Find someone, a family member who can come over and be in the home a couple days so she can have some time to herself and go for a walk around the neighborhood, et cetera. Sometimes it is just you being there but but look at it holistically and then make your job decisions your career decisions in light of what you think is the best solution for uh for your your family if the stress is primarily due to the difficulties of a 3 month old baby then just recognize that this is not necessarily a long-term thing. And so don't commit yourself to a long-term solution of quitting a job or something like that when good chance four months from now, you're out of the woods, she's back to her normal self, she's feeling good, she's fully recovered, she's sleeping, the baby's back healthy, et cetera. And then finally, don't neglect whatever solving the actual needs are. So for example, with the baby, don't neglect, you know, why is this baby not sleeping so that my wife is frazzled because she's not sleeping is there something that can be done? Be really good at at, at driving your family through all of those things on a comprehensive way.
4: Yeah, it's actually the opposite. It's actually our two year old that's very strong willed <laughs> and uh, bucking against the power, as it were. And and uh, and th- so the problem is right now we we bought five acres in a property um, and we're kind of isolated. We're not. I mean, it's, I guess that's the whole point of buying five acres on land. Uh, really pretty property, but we're not near family. We're about probably an hour away from family. And so, and and we put our oldest daughter and mother's day out. We don't, we didn't really like a full daycare schedule. We lived mm-hmm. just like two days a week right. um, just so we could be present. And so with the W2 job, we would uh, have to either move or, and, and they've actually said they would accommodate a, a hybrid schedule. So I, I would basically drive an hour, two days a week or three days a week, and then work from home two days a week, um, so that we could keep, you know, the house. But I, I honestly don't know if that's the best for our family, you know, cause again, we're isolated a little bit further out from the city, um, versus again, my wife, you know, us being a little bit, you know, maybe 10 to 15 minutes from family. But I, one thing we realized Joshua is unless it's very convenient for family to help, they just don't. Yeah, And, um, yeah, I think that's just we're starting to realize that both of our parents are our past, my parents and her parents, are not in not in the picture, so they're not helpful, and so um, we we just realize people that have jobs don't really uh, don't really go out of their way to help, and so it's it's unfortunate, but it, it's just kind of the way it is um, with with our siblings. So
0: I would not um, say that you were I'm, wrong if you left your job, moved, or whatever the actual circumstances are, so that you could be there you know, as is, is a stay-at-home dad or very close to that for a significant period of time. Uh, and in many ways, it kind of feels like that's almost what we have to do in today's world. If you've got a big vision of the family that you're trying to build and the work that's going to be involved in that, et cetera, then you have to do that. I have sacrificed enormously in my career, in my business, in all of my own pursuits because I have a vision for the family empire that I desire to build and the dynasty that I desire to leave behind. And so it's costly and it's financially costly and costly in many ways. And so I respect you for that decision if that's what you choose to do. Uh, and I'm not trying to, I'm not going to be able to I willing even to give you an answer on this just to help you think it through. Mm-hmm. So just understand what the, what the core issues are. At, at, the reason I was saying like, I would respect you for that is that for whatever reason, our culture is not, and this is very key to kind of the, the, american culture every positive good or value has a negative flip side right confidence and assertiveness are positive traits but the flip side is aggression or you know mowing people down and not listen and lack of empathy right so every everything can have a positive trait in the united states we are a very independent people and that Leads to a lot of positive traits. But what has happened is we have taken our individualistic independence and we've taken it to the absolute maximum, to the point where you see this in our culture, where the greatest sin that anybody um, could think could be could be foisted against them is for somebody to try to minimize their libertarian freedom to do whatever they want to do. And so who are you to tell me I can't do that? You can't tell me. It's like this this extreme ugly form of independence. And so our culture lacks any sense of coherent interdependence as a cultural value. And so we, 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 we don't, we have no collective culture. And that lack of collective culture expresses itself in our families, our churches, our neighborhoods, et cetera, that we just don't work together. And, and so. It's, and it's tragic. It's, 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 it's a very lonely existence compared to some aspects of a collective culture. It has its positive upsides. You listen to somebody who comes from a very collectivist culture and they talk about the, the pressure that's put on them and the control that's put on them and they're just happy to be left alone. So every, everything has a, a positive and a negative, but I affirm that in the American culture, it's, very unlikely for you to kind of to get the kind of support that you would like to get from your family members from your community etc we're all we're all it's the same for everybody and so what that means is it has put an enormous pressure on people who have children and it's much much harder to have children today Because of this, where you basically have to bear the load alone, and so that Mm -hmm. and and that it's one reason many people don't want to have children or don't want to have more children, et cetera, is because they know they got to bear the loan load alone. Um, And so I've I don't have any great solutions. I've just accepted that this is the way it is, and I'm just going to have to bear the load alone, which means I have to build stronger shoulders. My wife has to build stronger shoulders, and. You know, we'll just, I'll make up my own strategies to get through it and I'll arrange my life to do it. And it's kind of ultimately what, what, what I've come to. And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not casting any harm or any blame on anybody I am I have wonderful family members I've got great friends I've got neighbors etc but we we don't know how to really work together nor are we particularly willing to work together and so Mm. like in in here's just an example I'm stereotyping but I believe this stereotype is true if you went to your siblings or your in-laws or whomever it is in your, in your family and you say to them, hey, guys, listen, there's a town that is, or even just our friends, right? And we said, look, there's a town that's you know, 300 miles away and they've got houses that are great houses, mansions for 50 grand a piece. If all of us moved there, we could all be neighbors and we could live a great life and we could support one another, we could encourage one another, et cetera. In the American culture... It doesn't fly. It doesn't work. It's never worked. It just it, people won't do it. Nobody will move. Nobody is willing to work together. Nobody's willing to sacrifice my <laughs> independence to go and do that. Meanwhile, all around the world, people that are from more collectivist cultures, one person goes to another country, gets a gets a, a, a residence visa, gets a house, brings over two of his siblings. You know, he's got his brother there and everyone's putting their money in the pot. And they got 18 people living in a two-bedroom apartment. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, everyone's rich because they're willing to work together. And they're <laughs> it happens
4: every single day
0: and it's this yeah. cultural values of collectivism versus individual out, individualism
4: <laughs> not ironically that was my father my father came to pakistan and uh three four siblings living in a house four four bedroom there two bath house for 10 years before they split up and yeah yeah um so it sounds like so it sounds like you probably took the uh if you were in my position you probably took the Hey, I'm going to be the family, raise my kids. Cause I want a strong family. I want, yeah. you know, we, we both would like three, four, maybe five kids. Uh, my wife is kind of rethinking that now though, with the, <laughs> the realization that, Oh, David is not, you know, he's out of the home and he's working, you know, at a, you know, back at a W2 job. Um, I don't want to forsake that for, I, I guess. So we're, we're coast fire, right? So Putting that out there, mm-hmm. is there anything that you look back now? I don't think I would have any regrets uh, from a time perspective of, of just being like, "Wow, I had so much time with my kids," you know, in their formative years, and even as they grew up. Are, are there things from a financial perspective? I guess that's the only thing that I am concerned about. That you know, if twenty twenty four and and you know onward are, are just rocky years, and my side job is now my main job and my only job. Uh, all of a sudden, we have to, uh, you know, from an income perspective, we have to, you know, go on a rice and beans type of diet. Yeah. And may, maybe it'll be worth it. I don't. I don't know.
0: If I were doing it over again, I would not change any of the decisions that I myself have made. Because, right? I, I we have five children, my wife and I. If I just left her at home all day and said you got to be super mom, especially with things like homeschooling and 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 whatnot, it's just it's impossible for a woman to 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 do that in in our world. And it's also one more comment on that: it's impossible because of the standards that are imposed upon us by our society or on ourselves. If If we were to go back 75 years ago, and I see this all around the world more clearly than I do in the United States, but I know it's there in the United States, the standards for what was expected from a parent were relatively modest. It was expected that you fed your children at least as much as you could, and they ate a couple times a day. Uh, It was expected that they went to school. And beyond that, children had an enormous degree of freedom, and our culture was very… Like was very open to children, and was very, and they were they could come and go, they could come and go in the house, they could go and play in the neighborhood, they entertained themselves, they took care of themselves, et cetera. I just finished reading, with my perfect example. If you want a picture of the world before, I just finished reading the third of the um, the Moffat series of books to my family. It's Elizabeth Estes, uh, I think it's Elizabeth anyway. Her name is Estes, and she wrote this. Great trilogy of books. Amazing children's author. One is the first one is called Meet the Moffats. Forget the second one and the third one is called Rufus, and they're all about these children that are living in a fairly typical, uh, a fairly typical town, I don't know, New York, something like actually, uh, yeah, New, in New York State. And the mother is a widow and she has four children and she's a dressmaker. That's how she earns her income. They're clearly basically in poverty, but. What's so fascinating about the story is that basically the children are free-range kids all the time. You know, they they sleep at home and they have dinners with their mother. But beyond that, they come and go around the town as they wish. And they were are what today we would call free-range kids. And this was entirely normal. This was the normal way of being. And so the children are not an, not a great impediment to your life in that situation. Well, fast forward to today... If you let your children walk to the park half a mile away, the police are going to get four calls, you know, on why Mm. are these unsupervised children walking to the park? And basically, every single layer of our society has built up to like with this intense protectionism, where nothing can happen. Right? You can't. You can't ask your sister to take your children, and you know, first of all, no one would take their kids to the mall and just leave them. A lot of us grew up in the day in which that was a fairly normal thing. No cell phones. Okay, I'll take Mm -hmm. you to the mall. I'll pick you up at six o'clock. But even if you ask them to take them today, of course, you can only take them to take our children to a supervised place with lots of referees and. Lots of padding where we're going to pay, uh, you know, thirty dollars for playtime and latte, and so you ask your sister to do that. Oh no, I can't do that because she's. God, we got got to have car seats. And so she's got two children and your two children need to have two car seats. And of course, four car seats can't fit in the car, so she can't do it. And so basically, that's our society in a nutshell is it makes everything about it is forcing families to be individualized, forcing families to do it all themselves. You have to take your children because you're the only one with car seats and your friends can't pick them up. And so you can't even get an afternoon off. And so, why did why am I ranting about this? Just to say that, like, this is what has happened. And so, children are instead of being a uh, instead of being a relatively, you know, not that big of a deal. Uh, They become an enormous nuisance in our society based upon the way that they are, and this is one of the many reasons why birth rates have collapsed around the world. Now, you can change that, right? You got five acres, and so your kids can be free-range kids. I live on a farm. My children are free-range kids to a a significant degree, and what happens is you have more of them, then you realize I don't have to be quite so uptight as I was with the first time around, and I can just let them hang out, and that's actually good for them, and you wind up with a bigger car, and so you can fit them, and, and you... You, you And things change. And so they don't, over over time, you become, your standards can change and you recognize it's not such a demanding thing. But it is still demanding and it would be a very unusually strong woman who would be able to have four or five children in a situation like you're describing and be able to do it without significant input and help from you. I know a few women who do it, and they are incredible women, incredibly strong women. But if you want to have a large family, then you've got to make sure that your wife is on board with that. And a significant component of that is just going to be meeting her needs and taking care of her. And so I w- that's what I did, is that I made that decision, and I have sacrificed a lot uh, to do it. And I believe that it's the decision that I'll be happy with at the end of my life. I'm quite happy with it right now, but it is it is a lot. And what I have seen also is that my wife is much, much stronger today than she was you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and so being a mother and being a father, these are skills that develop over time. I'm a vastly better father today than I was 10 years ago. And she is as well. And so I can do more, she can do more, et cetera. And and it's just a matter of kind of changing your perspective. And last story like, literally uh, today, uh, my eldest two are away at a short term camp. And I'm sitting at the table with my younger three and just thinking like, this isn't difficult. This is like the house is quiet. <laughs> Anytime you go from five to three, it's like, where's this is easy. I could do this at no time. But it wasn't that way when I had three children. And so just recognize that if you've got a vision, you're going to have to press through. And I think it's the vision that will pay off at the end of your life. Uh, and you've worked really hard to get to this point. And if you have to take 10 years and go on to kind of a sideline career track, and then 10 years from now you step back in then then that would be fine what what you should do and but this was actually I intended to say this but I got sidetracked with my monologue what you should do and what I have done is always try to keep a good backup plan so every year for example I pay the the CFP board. I can't remember what their dues are. It's like $600 a year, something like that. And every year that stupid bill comes in. And every year I sit there and I look at it. And I don't today care at all about being a certified financial planner. It makes no difference to me whatsoever. It's like the day that I passed the exam and I put it on my business card, it completely lost all meaning to me. Just like you, know, you graduate from high school and and you, uh, uh, you know, and, and then you enrolled in college and all of a sudden your high school graduation, wow, what does it mean? You know, I'm a freshman again. And so I don't care at all about being a certified financial planner. I practically don't even tell anyone, although I've tried to change that. But I've always kept all those designations and I pay that $600 bill every year because it's my backup plan. So that if for some reason my business failed or I needed it, I can go and I can quickly get reemployed. And in a month, I can have a job making a few hundred thousand dollars a year and part, and I can get the interview because of the credentials, et cetera, and I can make that happen. And so those things are, are really important. And so look at your job and your career and ask yourself. Do I have an easy on ramp back in? Because the things I think that the people who suffer the most of dialing back their career for a time are those who wind up becoming irrelevant and obsolete, their skills start mm. to atrophy. And if they don't have the ability to get back in, then it really hurts them. And where you see this hurt a lot of where, where this is the most obvious is when you look at moms, bec- mothers who become stay-at-home mothers. They pay an enormous price in their career options because they step out of the workforce to raise children. And so, you know, they're at the top of their career and they're 30 years old and she, she goes home, spends 10 years raising babies, and then she wants to go back in. Well, she's looking around at all of her friends and they're all... 10 years ahead, and she's not able to compete with them in the workforce. Uh, And so that can be a frustrating thing. And so, if she doesn't value the fact that she's got four children that they don't have, and then it's a big price for her to pay. And the same thing can apply to someone in your situation. So, uh, it's a price that I would pay, it's a price that I have paid, I am paying, and I would pay again. But it's also something where you want to be smart, keep your certifications, keep your contacts, keep yourself connected, make sure you have a good backup plan so that if you quit your job, you can go back in again and and start over again and and create the money that your family needs.
4: And if you off ramped what, what, uh, aside from like healthcare, maybe going on to the exchange, are there any other um, financial uh uh-ohs that you would, that you've experienced? Um
0: most of the issues are psychological rather than practical. Once you have once you reach this point, especially if you've accumulated assets and you're coast fi, fi etc., you know how to do the the tactical everyday stuff. Um like you know how to make sure you don't overspend your income. You know how to do all that stuff. So a lot right. of it is psychological because as a man you want to compete, and slipping into irrelevant oblivion is a big price to pay. Uh, it's basically part of the same standard speech that I give to men who are retiring. i like, I don't think men should retire from work even when they can afford to. And the reason is that work provides us with a lot of things that a lot of self worth and self- image that cannot be achieved sitting at home. Um, in your work, you are respected. You're looked up to. You're a leader. You have influence. You have authority. You have power, etc. And when you leave your job, you lose those things and you become just another guy. And if you're old, just another old guy. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. You're just another old guy. And I think even in a lot of cases, this can cause problems in your marriage, that one reason your wife is attracted to you is because you're confident, you're a leader, you're looked up to, you're respected, other people respect you, and that increases her attraction to you. She's attracted to you because you're a high-status man in some circle in your job in your business in whatever it is that you do and you come home and you're just kind of the guy sitting around the house there are a lot of psychological costs to that and if you don't have some way to manage those costs then that can be the biggest thing that that affects you it's not the, it's not the money it's not you know, living on your income, you can do that, and your expenses can go down, and you can live well on on not a ton of money. But if you experience those psychological things, they can be pretty heavy. Now, it's not insurmountable. Um, I have taken an enormous amount of joy in the work that I do with the, my children's education. Um, there is no there is no possible way that anyone else in the world. Uh, would be able to, any school or any tutor that I found would be able to help my children to achieve at the level that I have been able to coach them into in their academics and in other non-academic pursuits as well because I'm trying to build a well-rounded education. So I take a lot of joy in that uh, and a lot of sense of self-worth in that. But it is also a weakness in my life that I'm trying to 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 change is that being. Alone and independent—it's not good for a man to be alone. And being alone and independent, it comes—it's—it's it, a—it's a—it just comes with a cost. It's not good, and so it's a decision that I made. But if I were to make it over, that would be the biggest thing that I would work hard to fix. And I'm working hard to fix to be more connected, especially with babies and whatnot. I used to travel um, you got me in story mode, but like I used to travel. I used to be involved in all of the communities. I used to go to all the conferences. Like I tell other people to do, et cetera. And it got to the point where if I left, it was just so hard on my wife. I couldn't, I couldn't leave her in, in difficult situation, be gone for a week here and a week there and whatnot. There's men who do it. There's women who can handle it. But since I don't have to do it, 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 uh, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like I should do that. Uh, how should I? How can I put that on her and has caused her to bear that heavy load of me being gone traveling when I don't have to go and do it? But that has caused me to, in many ways, feel um, less relevant, less connected, less accomplished, less successful, uh, and it has come at the cost of just basically being a devoted father, uh, and so again, I, I, I accept those costs, but it's not something that I want to continue. And so even this year, I'm traveling more, I'm away more, I'm connecting with people more, I'm working to connect people with more. Uh, but it was an intense period of life. It, you know, My eldest is 10 and my youngest is, uh, is a year. And it's been an intense period of life. And so I don't see any way around it. In our culture, it, it used to be that if you could figure out a community where there's a lot of women and grandmothers and whatnot who could help your wife, and a great community of people the children can run out the door and spend all day playing, go there. Um, but lacking that, you're just going to have to do it. But try to handle these these costs and, and be intelligent about how you approach them.
4: And, and sorry, last question: If I wanted to off-ramp, like let's say I was like, "Hey, I, okay, I'm going to do the you know the technical full-time position and the side hustle until you know X years." At what age, I mean, you've done this for a long time now, at what age is, I mean, as I've said, two, two and three months old, at what age do you start having those experiences where they're, you know, actually, I mean, I know their kids are always learning, but like, is there a certain age where it's like, okay, you really, you know, developing those strong ties?
0: Six, six is magic. Six is magic. And it's like with babies, I mean, I love my babies. They're cute, et cetera. But I don't really have an emotional connection to babies like my wife mm-hmm. does, like, you know, a mother – um a mother somehow builds, thank God she does, right? Because the baby wrecks her life for a year. Um, but like a mother, you know, my wife <laughs> sees sees her babies and she's just filled with this like exuberance and joy and what a cute baby. For me, it's like it's a baby and I have to take care of it and I take care of it and whatnot, but it just, it, it's not really, uh, I don't really connect with babies. And then they are one and they're walking and then they are two, and eventually they start talking and then they're three and they're four and whatnot. And they, they, every, every, and, I, and I try to do my best to be you know, the dad who plays. I want to be the dad who plays with my children and whatnot because I know that that stuff matters. And so I, I do it as, as, as much as I'm able to. But the joy for me is never about the kid. The joy for me as a father is about who the young man or the young woman will be. Where you really start to see that stuff is around five, around six, uh, and beyond. And so in my mind, the, the ages from six to about 12 are golden because depending on the level of intellectual and emotional maturity, at, at six-ish, and again, there's no hard line, but around six, you're dealing with a child who can think and of course, they love to ask questions, and it's question after question after question after question. And so, being with a human being who can think is infinitely more satisfying to me than interacting with a human being who's just driven by his or her emotions. Uh, and so, and then there's a there's that just golden period from six to twelve where there's not really any need for outside uh, experience. There's not really any need for outside. Uh, what I mean is. Children don't need friends outside of their family if they have a lot of siblings. Obviously, you work to do that because the so, is, socialization is important. Uh, and so you try to make sure they have friends and you try to make sure that they, uh, that they have opportunities to learn to play well with others, et cetera. Those are important social skills. But there's no real need. They don't have an emotional need for that. Their whole source of supply of, of stability comes from their, their family, from their siblings, from their parents, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so it's just that to me, that's the golden time where you have an individual who can think and you have an individual that you can really pour into and you don't need to... to encourage independence in a child that young. Now, when you get to a child who's, say, 11, 12, et cetera, then now you need to start making sure that the child is, in, is developing his or her own independent interests. And you need to make sure that there's more and more confidence and self-confidence as being built in strength. And so you're, you're, you're intentionally maintaining the closeness of relationship and you're trying to keep your children connected to you emotionally but you're m- trying to make sure that they have room to to in- explore and investigate their own things and to be and to have space to make their mistakes and have to respond to other people and learn lessons etc. So to me, those are the golden years that that things really pay off, and they start to remem- remember stuff, uh, etc. And so, you know, I love, I like traveling with my f- children. I like, I love doing their school. I love kind of supervising all those things. I really enjoy it because my older children they're able to think and they ask me questions, and it leads to interesting conversations, etc. And I really feel like you're building something, and you don't yet have to deal with their independent ambitions, and you don't yet have to coach them. To independence, uh, because of their of their youth.
4: And sorry, circling back on one question. So on the, you know, we're, like I said, we're about an hour away from family, but we're on five acres. Would that play a factor? I mean, would you forget about the job and all of that? Would you? Would it be better to be closer to family? You know, sell our house on five acres and move into the city. It's not, it's not my preference just cause I feel like for the last like seven years, I mean, listening to you and other people and just making my own thoughts, I, pref- I think living out in the country is a better decision, but regardless, um, what, what weight or factor do you put on that in terms of, you know, raising a family? One
0: primary reason that I live where I live is I live on a very large property where I can simply tell the children go outside, my wife can tell the children, go outside, do not come in until I call you for dinner. And that, I believe, is really, really important, both for the sanity and good functioning of our household and also for children, that today, in today's world, one of the most important gifts that we need to give our children is significant quantities of unstructured playtime outside. And that is something that is really, really important. And it's important on every level. Physiologically, we we are living in right now, I'm not using hyperbole, we are living in an epidemic of myopia, nearsightedness. And a significant causal factor seems to be that The epidemic of myopia is that children are not outside and they're constantly engaged in some form of close work, always reading a book, on a screen, writing, something up close. And so, quite literally, our children's eyes are losing the ability to focus normally and to function normally because they're spending all their time with stuff that's in their faces. They're also not getting enough sunlight. And so, the, the, Their eyes are not being stimulated sufficiently with sufficient sunlight. And so minimum, children need to be outside for at least two to three hours a day, ideally more. And that's to say nothing of the benefits of of free play, of the benefits of exploring, the the physical benefits of running and throwing and and climbing and and et cetera, and interacting with their siblings, et cetera. It's, It's fundamentally important. And it's very, very difficult to do that in the city. It's very difficult to do it in the suburbs. And so, you know, depending on what you're talking about, obviously many children have raised that. But again, back to the issues with being reported to CPS is that you will get reported that you will have child protective services knocking on your door if you let your children go out alone to the park. I, it's, it's, it's a, it's a. The American culture is utterly broken right now on this topic. And so if you went back to, say, 1940s Brooklyn, then... The children weren't hindered by living in a tenement house because they were outside playing in the street and on the abandoned lot, et cetera, and that was normal. Today, the children growing up in Brooklyn, they can't play in the street, and so this is one of the problems and what's your solution? Well, either we change the culture and some people are doing that. Either we normalize again the fact that it's perfectly reasonable for your eight year old and your nine year old to ride their bikes half a mile to go to the park. Uh, and play at the park for a couple hours and then come home. Uh, So either we normalize that or what's your solution? Your solution is to go to a place where you can do that on the basically the sanctity of your own property and or in a culture that accepts that and a rural culture is more accepting of that. Uh, And so I believe that it's necessary that children have multiple hours a day of outside play. And if you look at kind of a barren suburb Quarter acre or half acre, even, et cetera. It's got one tiny little swing set in it. You know, what are they going to do? They got nothing to do. And and here's the other aspect is that basically everything associated with living in the suburbs or living in the city to keep your sanity as a father, you want to keep everything nice. And so you don't want your children digging in the backyard and destroying your nice, you know, pretty yard. (laughs) And but if you got five acres, you can say, listen, You see this place near the house, you don't dig here. The rest of it, where I can, that's basically my rule with my children. It's like, don't bring the stuff onto the porch. If I don't see it, it's okay. And you can have as much of a mess as you want out there, but I don't want to see it. (laughs) And it works. So then they can get those benefits. So yeah, I would, I would, in terms of your lifestyle, I think that you'll, since it's unlikely that your siblings would be able and willing to change their lifestyle structure such that you're willing to spend 15 to 20 hours a week working together so that you can send your children over on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and they can send their children over on Thursdays and Fridays, uh, et cetera, and interacting. Unless there's some strong indication that you can work together on a close basis, you're better off being an hour away and having five acres than the opposite.
4: Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. I think the word for this year is being intentional. We have to just they're not gonna come see us. We have to go see them. <laughs> we have to be intentional about it. <laughs> yep. Either whether we're ten minutes or an hour away. So, yep. Anyway. All right. Thanks, Joshua. Yep, my pleasure. Have and a just, good weekend.
0: Just recognize as you're making all these decisions that the pregnancy stuff or sorry, the, the child the, the baby stuff. there's no Mm. like don't make long-term decisions over short-term short-term factors yeah i've never met a mother who wanted to have a baby when she had a three-month-old right so just relax and get it get through it
4: (laughs) do your best to help her recover
0: work really hard to to have her physical energy work really hard to have her sunlight work really hard to get help her get fully to have as much sleep as possible even though it's not going to be all connected etc work really hard if she has any symptoms of postpartum depression anything like that work really hard at that stuff and then recognize six live, six months from now you're going to be in a in a very different um, very different uh, situation. Anyway, thanks for the stimulating conversation that sort of kind of was about finances thanks. but about the actual purpose of finances <laughs> much
4: more. <laughs> thanks,
0: <laughs> Joshua. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. My pleasure. All right, that wraps up our final call uh, for today and let's see as we go announcements. Uh, I said as we go, remember, I'm doing consulting appointments right now during the month of January. Go to radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult. Sign up there, radical slash consult, or if you just like to call me up and talk to me next week on the show, go to patreon.com slash radical personal Patreon.com slash radical personal finance. I hope that these conversations are useful. I I I always wondered, you know, on radical personal finance. Of course, it's easy me to do for me to do on a Friday show, but I always think carefully about the content and and things that I um that I cover and The point of it is that these are the reasons that we have money. And we have a a culture that has made the foolish decision to focus primarily on numbers on a balance sheet. And we do that. We make that focus because numbers are easy to measure. Money as a goal is something that is easy to measure because it is numerical. But just because something is easy to measure doesn't mean that that is the ideal measurement to shoot for. Money is a tool that allows us to live the life that we want, have access to certain things, etc. And so we need in personal finance, we need to spend a lot more time talking about the reasons that we are accumulating money. And the re- and, and the reasons we're making the decisions we're doing, rather than exclusively focusing on you know, the, the numbers of zeros and dollars. At the end of your life, that's why basically I hope it came through, but at the end of your life, would you trade half a million dollars in net worth at the end of your life to have two more children? It's a serious question. What, what is your ambition? Is your ambition to be 80 years old and have an additional half million dollars in net worth? Or would you rather be 80 years old and have an additional two children and maybe an additional eight grandchildren, et cetera? Uh, the answers to those questions need to drive your life now because money is the thing that's basically the easiest to solve. There's always opportunities to go and, and work. But if you're living in a culture that is unfriendly to children and you want to have children, then you're going to have conversations kind of like the one that we just had. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back with you very soon. RadicalPersonalFinance.com to book a personal consulting call with me and radic- uh, per- Patreon.com to be on next week's podcast.